0: I think we're seeing the practice of law change under our feet. I mean, if you're paying any attention, the, the lawyer is not seen as the expert that the lawyer once was. And the, the practice of law, you know, at some time in the last 10 to 15 years has transferred from a lawyer-driven industry to a client-driven industry. I'm Chad Main, and this is Technically
1: Legal, a podcast about the intersection of technology and the practice of law. Each week, we'll talk to a mover and shaker from the legal and technology fields, We'll learn a little bit about them, what they've been up to, and hopefully get a couple of real-world tips that lawyers can use to integrate technology into their legal practices. In this episode, we're talking about the blockchain. Next to artificial intelligence, there's probably no other more hyped piece of technology that people believe will fundamentally change the practice of law. But what exactly is blockchain? I can't tell you, so I brought in a couple of attorneys who could. In this episode, we'll talk about what blockchain is, we'll talk a little bit about its history, and whether it really will change the way lawyers practice law. But first, what's any good conversation with lawyers without a disclaimer?
2: We are not your lawyer, is our disclaimer, I guess. Right, Zach?
0: Yeah, that's right, Chad. We're not your lawyer. And also, I think we probably want to say uh, anything that we um, discuss related to uh, cryptocurrency investments, um, A, should be ignored, and then B, should, uh, you know, if not ignored, should not be regarded as investment advice. Yeah, and if you're taking investment advice from us, you need your head checked anyway. That's Zach Smolinski and Christian Audi,
1: two Chicago attorneys who love their blockchain. I'll let them tell you a little more about themselves and how they got into blockchain, but Zach's with Zilliac Law and Christian with much shy both Chicago law firms.
0: I'm primarily an intellectual property attorney. I've been practicing law for 18 years. My, my main model of working is to serve as my client's general counsel. Handling uh, essentially their entire legal function, uh, and because of my IP background, my focus is on tech firms. Um, and as you said, I have a collaboration with Zilliac Law uh, here in Chicago, um, and I'm working with uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain-related clients.
2: My name is Christian Audi I am a, a partner in the law firm, of much shellist. I work primarily in data privacy and security. And I am increasingly uh, advising clients in the areas of blockchain and cryptocurrencies.
0: I got into blockchain because I read about uh, technology nonstop, and I got to the point where I just couldn't open up my favorite websites without someone talking about Bitcoin. And at first, I was like, "Come on, just I just I just didn't want to read about this stuff. It didn't it didn't appeal to me all that much." After five years of ignoring it, I got to the point where it was just too much in my face. So I was like all right, fine, I've got to learn what this stuff is all about. Um, so I started going back and, and looking at uh, some of the underlying uh, concepts behind it. I, I have what I call uh, the five video rule, which is if I go on YouTube and watch five videos, I consider myself an expert. Um, <laughs> and, and I, I would uh, recommend that to, uh, to the listeners as well if you're, if you're wanting to get up to speed on this stuff because there's some really good explainer videos out there. Once I saw some of the potential applications for the technology, um, I got really excited and i i actually started to think this is a differentiating technology of the sort that i want to know more about and of the sort that i want to be involved in
2: i I had the same experience as zach i I came across the concept practicing law in the context of data privacy and security i was doing data breach remediations uh for some clients and i I started wondering you know how these hackers got paid and uh turned out that it was bitcoin and then i it S- sort of went from there, and you know I had the same experience um, I think that that Zach had, which is you know once you wrap your head around it a little bit, and this was back in 2012 and 2013 and God, I wish I bought some, you know <laughs> but when, once you sort of wrap your head around it, it becomes it, you, you think, wow it it really can change a lot of industries, and it's incredibly exciting it's brand new. And it's, it's something that's just starting. It's like the Internet 95, to use the cliche.
1: Okay, so blockchain is disruptive. It's a game changer. But what is it exactly? As Christian explains, it boils down to a ledger of transactions spread across a network of different computers. Think of an old school banker's book with a ledger of transactions, only the book's not a book anymore. It's electronic, and the bank doesn't control the book anymore.
2: Blockchain is a distributed ledger. Um, In the case of Bitcoin, it is a distributed ledger of transactions. And distributed in this case means that um, more than one network participant or more than one computer or more than one node in the terminology um, sees the exact same ledger. That's essentially what it is. To just give you a basic example, let's say that I am going to send $100 to Bob. And I write an email. There's a ledger showing that I have maybe $1,000 in the bank. And that ledger is shared with two other people. I write an email to these two other people, a reply to all email. And I say, I'm going to send $100 to Bob. These two other people say, okay, well, let's check to make sure that you have that $100. They then race to check the ledger to make sure that I have that $100, $100, they confirm, the winner confirms that I do, and they publish the transaction. The $100 goes to Bob. I have $900 left, and there is a new ledger. That is essentially what a blockchain is.
1: When you say ledger, what's uh,
2: a real a real world? A real world analog? analog would be Chase Bank, right? Chase Bank has a, a checking account for me, and it says that I have X in that checking account. It's not enough, right, by the way. But it has, I have X in that that checking account, and they're maintaining that ledger. And we trust Chase to maintain that ledger. I could show you my bank account, and I could say, you know, Chase says that I have $100,000 in there. I don't. I don't have $100,000 in my checking account. But if Chase said that, you would believe that. And you would believe that because Chase is a trusted entity. What the blockchain does is it gets rid of that trust requirement, it says, Instead of trusting Chase or any intermediary to tell us what the ledger says at any given point in time, we are instead going to develop a system, a consensus algorithm that is going to appoint someone on the network, essentially at random, but with a stake in the system to publish the new ledger for us.
1: Okay, some distinctions and definitions might be helpful here. We just heard Christian describe blockchain technology, but the terms Bitcoin or cryptocurrency Those might sound more familiar. So what's the difference? Cryptocurrencies are digital currencies that use blockchain as their underlying technology. The blockchain keeps track of the transactions between people when they transfer Bitcoins or whatever the currency is back and forth. As Christian explains in just a second, the origin of Bitcoin is a little shrouded in mystery and of all places started with a white paper. Most people say the first purchase with Bitcoin happened in 2010 when some guy bought a pizza for 10,000 Bitcoin. Suffice it to say, in today's dollars, that's a lot of money.
2: The author of the Bitcoin white paper was a guy by the name of Satoshi Nakamoto. And nobody knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is. He, he did you know write a number of posts for a period of time on some fora. There is a suggestion that he may be a she. There is a suggestion that Satoshi Nakamoto is not one person, but is many people, uh, a, a group of people. There are people that correspond with Satoshi regularly now. There was somebody by the name of Craig Wright, uh, an Australian, who claimed to be this person. Uh, But the answer is that nobody really knows. And perhaps more importantly, it's easily provable for the person who is Satoshi Nakamoto to prove that they are Satoshi Nakamoto. How so? They can sign transactions from the original, the Genesis block of Bitcoin, Which only Satoshi would know how to would know the code to do, and that would definitively prove that they are the person that or people that invented Bitcoin. This person's a billionaire, I would imagine. At this juncture, Um, they obviously have a proclivity for privacy. The Bitcoin system allows them to be private, and that is one of. One of the key advantages, I think, of a decentralized system is you don't necessarily have to make yourself known. Um, If you ask a government, the United States government or any other government, that's a problem, right? Because we can't track the flow of funds over uh, this network if we don't know who's passing value to whom. Um, But this is probably somebody who values their privacy um, or a group that values their privacy. And um, in my personal opinion, we should respect that. Because when you first started mining Bitcoin in 2009, 2010, there was almost no computing power on the network and the rewards were astronomical. So to give you an idea of how many Bitcoin came out in those early days, somebody paid 10,000 Bitcoin for a pizza in 2011. That is a $70 million pizza, as we're speaking right now. Bitcoin was cheap, it was almost free uh, in the early days, and the early miners um by today's standards if they kept all their Bitcoin would be extravagantly wealthy.
1: Wait, what? Did he just talk about mining? I'm struck and rich! I'm a billionaire! I'm a trillionaire! I'm a What does mining have to do with Bitcoin?
0: Mining is essentially participating in the Bitcoin network in such a way that you're verifying the existence of the transactions and um, uh, verifying to the network that, to the best of your knowledge, everything that you're writing in this current block is actually is accurate. So the way this is done is by uh, completing a bunch of arbitrarily difficult mathematical equations. Um, and it, what this is called is a proof-of-work system. So if you throw enough computing power at the Bitcoin network, um, which computing power is used to A, show that you actually did these calculations and then B, confirm that the transactions in your view of the network actually exist in, and happen the way that you claim to happen, that you claim that they happen. Uh, the Bitcoin network rewards you by um, doling out Bitcoin. Right, so think about think about um, the problem of, one of
2: the problems that Bitcoin solves is a double spend problem, right? How do you know if I, if I give, to Alice, how do you know that I'm not going to give the same $100 on the network to Bob later on? And and, and the way you do that is by essentially time stamping transactions. And that's what where the block in blockchain comes. There's a block of transactions confirmed and published to the blockchain every 10 minutes, roughly. And that's by design. The the algorithm makes it that way. Um, What the, the the real brilliance of this is it doesn't select the timestamper at the outset. It selects the time stamper based on who mines or who solves the cryptographic problem. Mining is really an effort to solve that problem, as Zach as Zach talked about. the The problem is a problem that is that can only be solved by rote computation, and it's going to take about ten minutes to do. Um, and the winner. The person who solves the problem spent a lot of money on electricity, so has a stake in the accuracy of the system, and then gets to confirm the block and receive their reward. And their reward at present is 15 Bitcoin, which they're then going to have to spend right in order to pay for the electricity.
1: Okay, now we know what blockchain is and how it works, but what exactly is the benefit of using it? As Zach explains, blockchain is powerful because its algorithm inherently verifies certain aspects of transactions that historically had to be approved and verified by third parties, like a bank.
0: The, the primary benefit of blockchain is, um, I saw it uh, described recently as a, a sensor-free means of information and, and value transfer, in that if you are on a blockchain network, all you are trusting in is in the code of the network. And so no um, third-party player and no underlying uh, or or overarching um, regulatory body can change what you decide to do on that network. So um, as long as I'm willing to transmit my $100 to Christian and he's uh, willing to take it, Basically, no one else can stop, us, stop that from happening. That can be a pretty powerful tool for reasons that go into some, you know, some, and in some ways, these go to the heart of why blockchain was originated. And, and we can only sort of guess um, at, at some of the underlying thoughts. But it, it came out of the financial collapse of the late 2000s. Uh, trust in um, third party intermediators was at all time low. And so what is um, a better way to uh, tackle that problem than to adopt a so-called trust-free uh, system. Really, that idea that, uh, that a third-party entity, whether it's a government, uh, whether it's a regulatory agency, whether it's um, someone who you just don't want to see what you're doing, they can't stop you from using it. According to some,
1: if the robots don't take over the legal profession, blockchain most certainly will put a bunch of lawyers out of work. While I agree that technology is and will continue to impact how lawyers practice law, in the end, as that one great saying goes, It's really hard to automate discretion. Christian and Zach agree that blockchain isn't going to put lawyers out of business.
2: It's in the nature of human beings to have disputes that elude documentation. I mean, the whole reason we have common law around contracts and the whole reason we have all of this this precedent and this judge-made law is because people did not account for every foreseeability in their agreements and they're human and they get into disputes about what words mean. And so on, and none of that is going to be changed uh, by the blockchain.
0: Yeah, I mean, dispute about what words mean is is not an area that lends itself to computation. Are AIs being developed that are going to be able to parse out words at a, at a super high level of uh, of uh, complexity? Yeah. But then I would also question, are we going to trust those AIs, right? Are we going to, are we going to trust that they actually have, you know, quote unquote judgment? Probably not. And and if, if we are, you know, we're years away from that.
1: As Zach and Christian alluded to, it is still very early in the life cycle of blockchain technology. And it's not something that most lawyers deal with on a day-to-day basis. However, It is out there. It is being used. And so I asked Zach, how exactly is it impacting the practice of law today?
0: Yeah. So what I do when I think about this is I divide it into two topics. I think one topic is blockchain in the law. That is, how are lawyers going to use blockchain technology uh, over the next decade or so? Um, And the other one is the law of blockchain. That is, how can attorneys use their understanding of the law to help people who want to work on the blockchain and want to launch businesses on the blockchain. Um, of, of those two, the second one is definitely in our faces right now. Um, I, um, I'm working with clients who are launching cryptocurrency funds. I'm working with clients who are developing solutions in the cryptocurrency space and in the blockchain technology space. Um, what you do there, if you're a lawyer, is you do what lawyers have always done um you you separate hype from reality you figure out what regulations apply to the goals of your clients um and then you do the work uh, by the way i have uh, i have acquaintances and friends in the blockchain world who would jump down my throat for hinting that there's such a thing as hype in blockchain right okay so so in other words there are these these these, these firm believers and i'm i'm not quite one of them but I understand where they're coming from, who will say it's impossible to overhype this technology. That is just how big it is, right? I'm not quite there. And I think as lawyers, it is our role not to be there. So, you know, that's a, again um, kind of a long answer to your question, but I think um, what can attorneys do right now is, you know, be aware of the technology, understand what types of questions are going to come their way. Those questions are going to take the form of, hey, me and my buddies want to start trading cryptocurrency. What's the best way to do it in a legally compliant way? Um, another one is going to be, hey, I heard about these ICOs, initial coin offerings. I heard they're a great way for, for companies to, to start to fund themselves. How do I use them? You know, Other questions that are going to come up. Um, I've got an interesting technical development in the blockchain space. What do I do? How do I protect that idea? Um, those questions slot pretty neatly into existing legal spaces. Um, I think you're going to have this gray area. As smart contracts become more prevalent, where you're you're going to have a combination, a certain, certain, you're going to have teams build up of coders and lawyers and lawyers who know how to, how to code and coders who know about something about law. That's happening. I know that there are attorneys out there right now, perhaps listening to this, who are building smart contracts. Um, it's not going to that kind of work is not going to land on the average attorney's, attorney's desk for years. Yeah, and it's, it's
2: you know, a smart contract. So what a smart contract is, it's important to sort of identify the terminology. A smart contract is a contract that executes entirely on a blockchain. That's, that's the idea uh, anyway. It's something that Nick Zabo, who I alluded to earlier, distinguishes between uh, a wet code and dry code. And dry code is what actually happens in the transaction on the blockchain, and wet code is all of the other stuff choice of law, jurisdiction, concepts of waiver and severability and amendment, you know, equitable ideas, equitable notions uh, uh, that can't be coded for or it would not be feasible to code them. I think that we are going to see smart contracts develop and be used on a day-to-day basis very soon. And I think that in particular, you know, the areas we sort of outlined, but it's going to be in areas where the quality of goods, if I may offer a prediction, the quality of goods doesn't matter. When I buy a stock, I don't care what, how, how nice the paper is. I don't care, you know, how it's printed. I don't care about any of this. I just care about the fact that I own the stock. That is the sort of transaction that is ripe for Uh, a smart contract that is ripe
0: for a distributed application yeah there are definitely attorneys who are building uh, smart contracts using smart contracting coding tools the most popular of which is a uh, coding language called solidity solidity i'll say that again um a tough word for me but um you know the average attorney is just not running into this stuff so Um, I I think what you're seeing is something along the lines of what is it, uh, William Gibson's attributed quote, you know, the future's here already, it's just not widely distributed. And so you're seeing some attorneys who are definitely going to be working with this on a daily basis. Who are those attorneys who are working with it right now? Um, They're probably attorneys who are building blockchain platforms, right? Um, You know, the two biggest words words in technology right now are probably platform and blockchain. So if you're working on building a um, platform based on making transactions easier. You're probably already working with the technology, and my guess is you're not listening to this podcast.
1: On one level, all this talk about smart contracts seems pretty theoretical and pie in the sky. But on another level, it's not far-fetched, and for certain types of transactions, using blockchain makes a whole lot of sense. For instance, in the transfer
2: and recording of deeds. Broadly speaking, one of the ways that blockchain could be distributed ledgers could be really valuable is in, um, authentication. So in identity management, uh, who you are, or in, um, the authentication of particular documents. And in this case, we'd be talking about deeds. You know, if you go to, for example, the, I don't even know what the assessor's office or the deed office, you could create a distributed ledger for with, with real stakeholders, the title companies, et cetera, and. I think it would really drive efficiencies there would not be the need to be shuttling back and forth to the county office or to the city office to procure this that and the other it would be something that would be shared immutable meaning it cannot be changed you'll hear a lot about immutability and censorship resistance when people are talking about this uh when people are talking about blockchain and distributed ledgers it is immutable it is censorship resistant and uh it's it's something that I think you could put deeds on a blockchain and it would work. And you can code the in entirety of a particular deed or really any document using cryptographic hash functions onto a blockchain. So there 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 wouldn't be there wouldn't be, you know, for the folks that are imagining well what this what would this look like would it be a PDF no not necessarily you wouldn't really need it to be. But I think you know more broadly where we're going to see blockchain is in is in supply chains and in other sort of You know, business use cases where you have multiple entities, multiple stakeholders doing business with each other and passing assets along in a continuum. Shipping is a good example. I think pharmaceutical distribution, distribution generally uh, are all really ripe for the blockchain. And then, of course, payments, uh, which was the original use case and still, I think, the best one.
1: While both Christian and Zach agree that blockchain technology in and of itself won't replace lawyers, they both had a little different take on whether or not it will revolutionize the way lawyers do their work.
2: Do I see the blockchain literally changing the way that law is practiced? I do not. I see it as something that is going to augment the practice of law and change the practice of law, but not, you know revolutionize it or eliminate whole sectors
0: yeah and yet i guess i would kind of push a little bit on that point point. and here's what i would say like right now there are you know a, a hundred or more attorneys in chicago um, showing up at real estate closings with briefcases full of paper sure. um, this revolution is going to move in the direction of that paper being preloaded in onto a blockchain Or whatever more efficient network replaces the blockchain in the future and the closing happening with the push of a button because everything has been pre-signed the network has identified and confirmed the identity of all those players so um, the the work of negotiating those terms I think is still going to be legitimate legal work but at the same time you're just not gonna have to be in the room together you're not gonna need I mean, you're going to need to know that you're working with an attorney you can trust. But what I foresee is that that ability to trust the attorney is also going to be built on a blockchain network. You're going to work with a five-star rated attorney, not on avo.com, not on Yelp, but on a verified blockchain network that can confirm that this attorney has successfully completed dozens and hundreds of these transactions. So. I mean, maybe what you'll see is sort of a a centralization of the function among only the very best attorneys who are the most efficient at running these things through. Maybe it's what we're seeing already.
1: Without a crystal ball, it's very hard to figure out how ultimately all the changes in technology will impact how lawyers do their jobs. However, Zach closed out the interview with some great insight about how the practice of law itself is changing from a lawyer-driven business to a client-driven business.
0: We're seeing the practice of law change under our feet. I mean, if you're paying any attention, um, you know, there's lots of talk about this topic. But the, the lawyer is not seen as the expert that the lawyer once was. And the, the practice of law, you know, at some time in the last 10 to 15 years has transferred from a lawyer-driven industry to a client-driven industry. So what you're seeing is good lawyers are aware of their client's risk appetite They're aware of their clients as people, and they're aware of the goals, the business goals that their clients have, and they know they have a good toolbox to bring to those discussions, and they know how to achieve those goals quickly and, you know, with a relatively um, efficient use of the client's funds. Like, those skills are not going to go away. What is going to go away is the mechanical work around providing those skills. Um, And by the way, I'm I'm all for losing that mechanical work.
1: Well, that's it. We hope you enjoyed episode number two with Christian Audi and Zach Smolinski. If you want to get a hold of Christian, you can email him at caudi at muchshilis.com. That's C-A-U-T-Y at M-U-C-H-S-H-E-L-I-S-T.com. And Christian's also launching a blog, Digital Lawyer. That's digitallawyer.wordpress.com. If you want to get a hold of Zach, you can email him at zsmolinski at ziliac.com. That's Z-S-M-O-L-I-N-S-K-I zilia And Zach also runs a monthly blockchain discussion called FinTank. It meets in Chicago the fourth Thursday of every month. You can get more information about that on Eventbrite or go to FinTank.org. Until next time, thanks for listening. This is Technically Legal.